Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. Hey, Ryan. How are you today? I'm good, Pam. How are you? I'm good. Do you ever have those days whenever you're feeling sick and don't want to come to work? Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> I think all of our listeners can uh, relate to that, but yes, I would say definitely. I can't imagine what our cancer survivors are going through, you know, here they're trying to shuffle everyday life around, trying to figure out their jobs, um, what they can do to secure their jobs. It's a scary time for them. It is. And, you know, we're starting to see, I think everyone would agree, we're starting to see more and more younger diagnosis of cancer. And so it's no longer uh, your grandparents' disease. It's no longer your parents' disease. And so uh, that's why uh, today's episode is so valuable and will be very important for a lot of our listeners, right? Yes. You know, Lots um, of information. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the thing about it is when we first started this podcast, we committed ourselves to asking the hard questions and figuring out the answers to the hard questions. And so that leads us to today. Uh, man, I'm just I'm thrilled to have uh, somebody that can really address some of these questions for us. Uh, we have Dr. Kathy Bradley. Now, I have to tell you, um, she has uh, two titles, and it's fantastic. She's the Associate Dean of Research at the Colorado School of Public Health. And Pam, she's also the Deputy Director of the University of Colorado Cancer Center. And uh, we are thrilled to have Kathy today. Kathy, how are you? Hello. Um, thank you for having me, um, Pam and Ryan. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I tell you, um, I, I, this is one of those topics. I know that you've done a lot of research. Um, I've read through some of your research, and uh, that's why we want you here today to kind of share some of your knowledge and everything with our listeners to help that transition of working and not working and uh, disclosure and all of those those tough questions. Uh, we want to make it easier on them. Sounds great. Pam, I tell you, let's just jump right into this. Uh, with Kathy. And uh, Kathy, impart some of your knowledge to our listeners, would you? I'd be happy to. Um, so I've been researching the topic around employment and cancer and return to work for um, almost two decades now and looking at various issues that cancer survivors, cancer patients face as they start to work and balance their cancer treatment, whether or not they can continue throughout the work trajectory. Um, and the trade-offs that they have to make, because for people under age 65, health insurance is through work. And in order for them to continue their cancer treatment, and as many of your listeners know, cancer treatment's not inexpensive. It's quite expensive. And if they're going to continue to keep their health insurance, that often means they have to continue to work or their caregiver has to continue to work, especially if they're under the age of 65. And aside from that very practical matter around health insurance and finance, um, there's a sense of work is a normal place for people to be. It's somewhere they can go and not be a patient. They can be a professional, they can be an individual who's knowledgeable, 
experience and not feel part of the patient system. It's a place they can escape from all of that. That's true for their caregivers too. So it's not just the, the individual who's experiencing cancer in their treatment, but this is a matter that, ex, that affects their entire family. It's important for mental health, emotional health, health, as well as economic well-being. So you started off by saying, impart some wisdom. You know, there's 17 million cancer survivors. 60% of them are working age. Um, so we have about 5% of the United States population who are cancer survivors, 60% of working age and still in the workforce. So that's a big number of people affected. But the good news about all of this is cancer used to be a disease that we, that we thought about after retirement. People got old, they retired, yep. Yep. and gosh knows they, got they were diagnosed with cancer and they had Medicare. Um, so this wasn't an issue. But now when we think about younger age people being diagnosed with cancer, some of that is the cancer, some of that is risk factors, and some of that is that we've gotten better at screening and early detection, and that's a success story. And we now need to balance with treating those early stage cancers where we have success at um, long-term survival with these economic needs and mental health needs, professional needs. So we don't wanna treat the cancer only to disable the patient. And there's a balance point there. Another thing to think about, we've had tremendous successes with these new therapies, immunotherapies, targeted agents. Everybody's very, very excited about them. They're brand new. Patients have the luxury of being able to take them orally at home. They're outrageously expensive and they continue forward until evidence of disease progression. So what does that mean? It means you keep taking it until your cancer returns or gets bigger or progresses, metastasizes to some other part of your body. And the clinical trials that tested those drugs looked at outcomes over a fairly short period of time. And so now we've given these great oral therapies to individuals and they are going to work because when we're taking oral therapies, we think life continues on as usual, right? It's like taking your blood pressure medicine, taking your hyper um, cholesterol medications. But we don't know the impact these drugs have on your ability to continue to work. And that's yet to be seen. It's not part of clinical trials. It's going to manifest itself over time. Who's gonna be affected? what indications, what side effects, what occupations. So a lot of issues here to think about, um, very challenging area, but critically important that we sort it out. Absolutely. You know, um, I was thinking as you were going through some of your, your, your talk there of how much, you know, it is important for there to be a normal place for the patient, just like you said, and, and, the, and then you took it to the next step and said for the caregiver, you know, I can, I can think of times where I was a caregiver for one of my children or, you know, for my spouse. And you, you do, you reach that point where it's like, I need to go back to work or I need to do what I need to do kind of thing. And I mean, it sounds selfish to say that, but we all know that's the, that's the situation. And um, to, for there to be as many people being diagnosed at the youngest, younger ages, like you just said too, that is a huge burden. Indeed so, it is. Yeah, let's talk about 
working through cancer treatment, if we can. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners, um, that may be where they are, or a handful of our listeners, um, working through treatment and kind of what that might look like in terms of how they can better have uh, those discussions with their employer or um, in terms of trying to make it to where it's easier for them to have a day-to-day job. Can you share some knowledge about that? Of course. So there's some things to really first highlight the importance of work and what work means to us. When you ask someone, a caregiver or someone about um, about someone that you're a friend with or that you care about, and you're checking in to see how they're doing. You know they have a diagnosis. You know they're undergoing treatment. And the response is, he's back to work. She's back to work. It means something. You know, it's, it means something inside. It immediately clicks in your head. That person's better, right? So some patients have to continue that process while they're undergoing treatment. And then the response to that question is, yep, continuing to work the whole time. And we think that person's doing pretty well, but that may not always be the case. They're actually balancing a number of things. They're balancing the relationships at work and at home and with their provider. So there's a number of communication type processes that need to occur. And one is with the employer. And it's really tricky for patients to figure out what it is they want to disclose and not. And that can vary by person and also by employer, how comfortable they are with sharing the information. Larger employers have generally the greatest number of protections. And there's a human resource department that someone can go to and say, I have this diagnosis and this is what it's gonna mean for me. That can be really tricky if you're in a small employer with five employees and they don't have anyone that can pick up that work. But nonetheless, there has to be some level of communication about when you're gonna be out, how long you're going to be out and what generally to the extent that you know is going to affect your workability during the time of treatment. So that opens up the communication channel with your provider. And to be able to say to your provider, you know, I'm working during this time. I need to know when are the treatments going to affect me most? If it's going to be the day after, can we schedule on a Friday? So I can be most affected over the weekend because I've really got to return to work on Monday. It's important. I've got to keep my health insurance. I, and this job is incredibly important to me. So that's a line of communication that also needs to open up. And I think sometimes patients are reluctant to communicate in either direction, right? They don't want to say to their oncologist, I have a job because They're thinking about their cancer and continuing to live and they don't want the oncologist to dial down the the treatment or anything. They want the best for them. So they're reluctant to say, you know, Tuesdays aren't going to work for me. (laughs) But they may need to. They may need to have that conversation and to figure out when would most be most compatible with their job. And then to sort that also out with the employer. Where we see the greatest problems occurring is when there's really poor communication between those three touch points, between the patient and the provider and the patient and the employer. And it may need 
to be a new channel opened up between the provider and the employer to call and to be able to have a conversation with human resources and there are limitations on what the provider can and cannot share. But to be able to say that this, you know, to say that this is a time when the person is going to be out and when we expect them to be able to return, at least to have that conversation, it may be necessary in some of those relationships. When there's no communication at all, is when we see the greatest breakdowns um, between the patient not being able to continue to work because they're not communicating openly. Right. Do patients, is it necessary for patients to fully disclose their diagnosis, their stage, what kind of treatments they have? Um, no, they are not required to disclose all of those things. They do need to disclose if they need accommodations and why it is they need those accommodations. The Americans with Disabilities Act is, provides for accommodations. It specifically lists out cancer as a condition for which employers must provide accommodations. Not all employers are covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act, very small employers or not. Um, and pa patients have to have worked for the employer a certain amount of time and a certain number of hours in order to qualify. But at that point, I do need to say I'm getting treatment for cancer mm -hmm. uh, because it is a qualifying condition and they can ask for accommodations that are reasonable and reasonable accommodations for many cancer patients are um, flexible time, flexible hours of when they come and go, um, a shorter work day or a shorter work week to be able to accommodate them during that time. And then um, from one of my studies, a really interesting point, I was studying women with breast cancer and we were asking them about accommodations. And the standard ADA question said, does your employer provide equipment for you to be able to continue to work? Many, many women with breast cancer answered yes. And I couldn't figure that out. I went back and listened to the recordings. It's a um, laptop to be able to work from home. Very, very reasonable accommodation. Most employers have a whole closet full of laptops that they no longer use, and that these are kinds of things that patients can ask for. But they don't have to say, I have stage three breast cancer. They just need to say, I am undergoing treatment for cancer, and I need the following types of accommodations. My treatments are going to be Thursday afternoon. I'm probably not gonna be able to work on Friday. Um, but I'd like to make up for it about Sunday. I start to feel better. If I had a laptop at home, I can check my emails and get some things done. Mm -hmm. These generally employers are very, very willing. Um, larger size employers in particular, they have policies and procedures in place. Smaller employers, less so, but often in our studies, employers do want to help. They just don't want to be caught by surprise. Is there other accommodations examples that you could give us besides the laptop? Um, the, the flexible work hours mm -hmm. or rest breaks in shorter work weeks are the ones that cancer survivors and cancer patients most frequently ask for. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think back, Pam, um, to one of our previous podcasts where we had on communicating with your doctor. And if you remember, and if our listeners, if you have not listened to that episode, please go back. I think it was uh, maybe episode three or somewhere in there. 
but it's important uh, what Kathy is saying about open communication to your provider. Um, you are the consumer, and that's what that's what our guest talked about is um, patients are the consumer and should not be afraid to, you know, ask the questions to their physicians. And in this case, as you said, how am I going to feel or how would, how should I expect to feel? Um, that's incredibly important, right, Pam? Yes. Or even, you know, the secretary or the receptionist hand you an appointment card. and Okay. Your treatments start on Monday. Well, that doesn't work for you. It's very important for you to be open communication with them and make sure that they accommodate you so that your um, treatment's not as stressful. Yes. You both raise excellent points about the communication and being able to advocate for yourself. It's really important to understand how treatments are going to affect you at work. Because sometimes there are choices in treatments. There are other alternatives that might work better for you and what it is you do. I'm reminded of an example that was given at one of the um, talks I attended. Um, someone had talked to a survivor, a breast cancer survivor, who happened to be blind and she um, read Braille. And when she was getting her treatment, she went home and, uh, or before, when she was told her treatment plan, she went home and did all kinds of research and tried to understand the side effects of the treatment. One of them happened to be peripheral neuropathy. She wasn't going to be able to read Braille anymore. Oh, wow. She got that treatment. Yeah. So, so close of coming to having a treatment that would have disabled her in a really important way. So it's understanding these treatments, their side effects, how it's going to affect you both short and long term. And if there are alternatives, are there ways to minimize if there are no alternatives? Are there rehabilitation things that you need to start um, and look into as soon as possible to minimize any side effects if there are no alternatives. But these are really important conversations to have. What about the caregivers? Do they Can they ask their employers for accommodations to take their um, spouse or loved one to treatment? Um, so the Americans with Disabilities Act does not cover caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's the Family Medical Leave Act that does. And that allows you to have um, 12 weeks a year that is unpaid, but you will not lose your job or your benefits during that time. And some states have made it better, have more generous benefits than the federal law. And you'd have to look and understand what your state provides in addition to Family Medical Leave Act. It too does not apply to very small employers. And you have to have worked for at least a year with the employer and have worked a certain number of hours with them in order to qualify for benefits. But if you do, you can take unpaid medical leave. It does not have to be contiguous either. You can take one day a week until you use that 12 weeks. It isn't that you have to take the 12 weeks all at once. And it's on a calendar year basis, so it starts again. Mm. That's good to know. That's very good to know. Um, so maybe let, I'm just thinking of a scenario. If if I'm undergoing treatment and I ask my employer for some accommodations and they're very helpful and generous and then my treatment changes and now I need a little bit of a different accommodation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not a one shot deal, right? I mean, you can go back to your employer, go back to your HR department and say, 
things have changed and I'm doing a different regimen and this is the only way I can do it now. And it has to be done this way. And so I kind of need to shift my accommodations. That's, that's correct. Right. That is correct. Um, it's, you're not locked into a particular type of accommodation. You can continue to ask and change. What the law does say is that the employer is required to provide reasonable accommodations, not an unreasonable. Um, and it's really up to the employer to decide that. So that's a very key word, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, anything else our listeners need to know about going working during treatment and um, that you can think of? I really do think planning and communication are the key parts to really try to understand how it is that treatment may affect you and what you're going to do if it's better or worse than what you anticipated. So there's always a plan A and a plan B that needs to occur. And perhaps you may get a little bit farther along in the alphabet as well in terms of the number of plans you have as things are adjusted or dialed back. But really it's important to know. And having these options brings down the stress quite a bit. Now, I'm sure some of your listeners don't have as many options as others. Um, but to start to think about what it might look like if you need someone to pick up the kids, if you need someone to help and not to be shy about getting those services and help that you can immediately, because this is such a critical part and it is something that um, patients and their caregivers worry a lot about. Sure. I know, you know, I know a question that often um, patients ask me is, you know, should I work or should I not? You know, and I think, like you said, it's so important for their mental health, too, that to maintain somewhat of a normal lifestyle for them. Exactly. And it's that trade-off of when it just becomes way too stressful mm -hmm. to continue to do both at the same time. And if they have a job where they can leave or take time away, that gives them an option. Um, yeah. Nobody knows how it's going to affect them until they get started, right? It's true. Right. Yeah. There's so many, so many uh, off-ramps and on-ramps throughout the entire process. One of the things, uh, Pam, that struck me, uh, Kathy, when you were talking um, about like picking up the kids and doing those things, this is that time in my mind, it's the time to go back to those friends and people that have messaged you and say, let me know if you need anything. Let me know if you need anything. That's the time to go back to those people and go, hey, I, I do need something. You know, don't be afraid when someone asks. A lot of times I think um, people are they're, they're genuinely interested in helping. They just don't know how to help. And so um, I would encourage uh, anyone that in that position where that's maybe don't let something. And I hate to say as simple because I know it's not always simple, but as picking up children or or getting this taken there at a certain time. Um, stand in the way of you uh, getting back in the work or being in the workforce during treatment, right? Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about, Kathy, we've, we've talked a lot about working through cancer and working during cancer treatment. Uh, let's talk about that other side of the coin, if you will, of I, I'm now finished with treatment and I'm ready to go back to work. Um, how, how does that play into, because as, as you were saying, on some of our, our, our accommodations and so forth, you have to have been working for a company for a period of time. What might that look like if uh, now that we're finished with treatment, going back to work? 
So there are a couple different scenarios. One is where you simply took a leave from your current employer and then you return back to your job. Um, and hopefully you're still able to do that. And one of the accommodations you ask for isn't to be switched to something else, but you have to think about that as a possibility as to what you can continue to do going forward. And that too requires very close communication with your provider. You may need rehabilitative services in some way, whether it be cognitive or physical, and be sure to ask for that and to have those things set up for you so that you can start treatment um, for those kinds of issues as well. The other scenario is where you quit your job. Um, you just couldn't keep it up. You didn't have a leave option and you had to quit altogether. And now you're going back out on the job market. And many patients wonder, do they have to disclose, have I had cancer? And they don't, um, they do not have to. You do have to disclose if you have a condition that interferes with your ability to do the work and you require accommodation for it. But in the opening interviews, certainly the fact that you've been treated for cancer doesn't have to be um, disclosed or discussed. What about on their resumes? Okay, so they've been treated for a year, year and a half, and they have this gap between their last job and now. Is there anything that survivors need to know and um, how to fill in that gap? Um, again, they're, they are not required to disclose if they've had cancer unless they have a condition that requires an accommodation. Um, they can always, there are any number of things. Um, it could be in a situation where you're perfectly comfortable disclosing and that is entirely up to the patient. It could be a situation where you just say, I was sick and I had to take some time off for a personal illness or a family member's illness. It's really up to them as to how they fill that particular gap. But some patients just prefer to say, I had to deal with a personal illness during that time. Mm -hmm. I'm all better. There's no limitation in my ability to do my job. Okay. Right. You, you know, if, if there is some accommodations needed to happen, like I, I, I'm doing great, except I've got to go to cancer rehab or, you know, I've got something I've got to kind of take care of on, on um, the back end now of treatment. Um, when is the right time to bring that up to a potential employer? Um, I think that when you're getting down to knowing that it's going to be you that's been selected for the position and you want the job, you're both in the same place to be able to say that then, because now you do have something that requires an accommodation. You, you need to leave at the end of the day, two days a week at four instead of five. And that is an accommodation um, away from their normal work week. And so being able to communicate that at that time um, is important. I think how you phrased it is also important. It's being able to say, I need to do this Tuesdays and Thursdays. I need to leave at four instead of five. I schedule it at the end of my day to provide the least amount of disruption. I'm willing to do everything I can to make up for that. This will not go on forever. I'll be done in six more weeks, something like that, that keeps it very positive. This accommodation or this um, additional rehabilitation that I'm doing, physical therapy, whatever it is, will help me be better at doing this job. 
and to really focus on those things and say, how is it that I can meet my needs as well as yours? So that there's a two-way accommodation so that the employer is listening, that you're, you're not saying, hey, I know you just were here and ready to get down to nuts and bolts of salary and all those other things, and when do I start? But I need to tell you something and say, I, I want to meet your needs. Right. I just have to do this to finish up for what's important to me. You know, that that's uh, very, very important to think about the way things are phrased and the way, uh, you know, it, it's important to think about, okay, it's, as I like how you said, this isn't going to be a long-term thing. This is a very short-term thing. I've got it scheduled till here. Um, and of course, you're, you've, you've got to have that potential possible new supervisor, new employer, uh, their best interest, because naturally they're wanting to make sure you're going to be around. They're going to invest a lot of money in you uh, to work and, and make sure you're going to be there. But here again, that, that C word, right, comes back out, communication. And that <laughs> it may be very hard. I know some of our listeners are going, I could never say that to my boss or I could never potentially say that. But if you don't, if you don't, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get the okay. accommodation. Right. And it's astounding how much you can do after you practice. People <laughs> get very nervous about these things. But practice, get somebody to be your boss. Your family's probably heard about your boss a lot. So <laughs> they can perhaps role play and get that through. Or if it's not your direct boss and you go to your human resources department to have that conversation first, they're required to keep that conversation confidential. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about a scenario where you're just getting ready to start a new job and you're getting an offer a little bit different, um, but get ready to role play those things. And how are you going to phrase it in the most positive way possible and understand that this is someone you're going to have a long-term relationship with. An employer wants to be treated fairly, just like you want to be treated fairly by them. So there's responsibility on both sides and to think that through. Any tips of maybe how patients can, um, you know, not be the favorite child at um, because they've got these accommodations? How does that work with other employees? Um, Again, it's going to be as to how much you disclose about what you need and don't need. Um, And there's no reason to flaunt, you know, these accommodations and things like that. These are personal relationships. These are personal conditions. These are things that you can keep confidential. Or if you're working in a situation where you're perfectly comfortable, then my guess is your coworkers will be supportive. Um, whenever, you know, as long as no one is perceiving an abuse of the situation, they generally tend to be very supportive. It's only when they feel like it's gone on too long, when the person's not pulling their, their share of the work, Mm -hmm. um, when there are problems that occur. So it's, you know, it's interesting. So here's a fun fact from some of my studies, um, women with breast cancer, again, we saw and then and I just it was another study that has not been published yet, but what we observed was for women who continued to work or went back to work, they worked more hours 
than women who had not had cancer. Most likely to make up for time loss, most likely to, to get their health insurance. They have to work a certain threshold of hours to qualify for health insurance. And also to prove something. I mean, that's just part of it to themselves and to others. They don't want to be perceived as disabled. Wow, that's that is a very interesting statistic. I I, I like numbers and looking at, at things like that. Um, and I, I imagine too, there's an aspect of um, I've gone through what I've gone through, and I now recognize how important, for instance, health insurance is because I'm sure they've seen those statements, um, and, and definitely want to do everything possible that they can to make sure that that that's around. That's true. And they may also approach their jobs with renewed vigor as well. Um, and also not wanting to be perceived as disabled yeah. in any way at all. Right, right. Well, and, and that kind of leads us, Kathy, into that uh, other aspect maybe some of our listeners have uh, thought about or talked with their provider about, about disability. Um, when is the right time for that discussion or, or what leads to that disability discussion for the right moment? Yeah, it's so hard to say when that right moment is, but it's something to really be aware of and to figure out where you are in the scheme of things and to have those discussions with the provider. You know, disability is not an easy thing to get. Um, takes a very long time. And it has to be a lot of communication with your provider who will be completing forms, um, lots of forms for you to be able to qualify for disability, right. especially social security disability. And um, yeah, the sad thing that I hear about most is someone with a very um, serious cancer diagnosis later stage. And you have to be disabled for a year before you can start to get the benefits for social security um, disability. And they're not gonna live a year. Right. Um, so it, you know, it, it becomes terribly problematic. Um, state Medicaid programs differ in terms of when you qualify for disability under the Medicaid program and can get assistance that way. But the sooner you start to think about that's where this is headed. And to be able to get those forms processed and the things that you need to do to put that in place um, so that you can get the benefits um, that you qualify for, you have to think about it early and often and talk to your providers about what you need to do and be fairly well organized about it because it does take a long time. Ron, you know what sounds um, would be perfect? Sounds like a social worker to help you maneuver through all the, the questions. And we're very blessed to have a great social worker. Yes. So for our listeners that are struggling, you know, do I qualify? Do I not? What are the rules? And they're a great resource. Oh, yes. You know, I, I was in my mind thinking about this. Um, you know, Kathy, you, you referenced uh, breast cancer patients. And um, Pam, you and I both know uh, the two locations here in town um, that, that treat breast cancer have amazing breast cancer navigators. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and then you get to the point where, you know, they're, they're worried about the treatment. Um, you need that navigator during treatment and post-treatment, uh, which can be a social worker. Um, you don't have to navigate this and walk this walk all by yourself. We want everyone to know, listening, 
you know, what Kathy is imparting this knowledge is a lot to take in um, and a lot to digest. And I think um, it's one of those deals where, I mean, your head could be spinning, right? <laughs> because I know it's, there's so much when to do this and when to do that and how long this is for and by law, they have to do that. And so I think you're right, Pam, take advantage of our social worker that we have at the Cancer Survivorship Center. Uh, reach out. Uh, a simple phone call is all it takes uh, to 806-331-2400. And remember this, we talk about this often, right, Pam? It's entirely free. 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 So uh, we encourage our listeners to do that and reach out to uh, ask for help. It's not, there's not a problem with asking for help. Uh, Kathy, I, 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 this today's uh, episode has just been really, really educational. Um, and and I, I thank you for uh, sharing your, your expertise um, with, with our listeners. I, I do want to uh, kind of close out our podcast as we always do, where we talk about uh, a powerful moment. You know, we're sponsored, uh, our listeners know we're sponsored by uh, Pete's CarSmart Kia. And we always end our podcast by having our guests talk about a Pete's powerful moment. Uh, Kathy, do you mind sharing one of those with us? I'd be happy to. Thank you. Um, so in one of those studies, uh, I, we were interviewing a woman who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. She was getting chemotherapy. And I'm always struck by this story, but I was reminded of it in recent times because of COVID. And how important being connected to your community is and how important our connections and relationships are with others during this time. We've really been reminded of it. So back to this woman in the study, she was being interviewed by one of our interviewers about her work and what she did and how she managed to get her chemotherapy um, while maintaining her job. And the interviewer asked her, tell us, what you do? And she responded, I'm a bus driver and for the local school system, which had excellent health insurance, great benefits, county government. And, um, and the interviewer said, have you talked to your oncologist about your job? She said, no. And then she went on about how do you balance those two things? And she says, well, I get up very early and I pick up all the kids and I take them to school. Then I get my chemotherapy. And then I go and it takes a while for it to really kick in. And I go and pick up all the kids and take them home. Mm -hmm. So what's so powerful about that is that those of us who may not be experiencing cancer, or be on the outside of those kind of experiences and just relate to it third or fourth hand, you have to understand that the person picking up your kids may be making those decisions. They may be dealing with some really important things about community, about their health, about their treatment, about their health insurance and their jobs. And so the, the, those that are fortunate enough not to be in that 17 million, think about all the ways in which you are connected and that we are connected through our communities. And that is, we've been so acutely reminded of in the last, I guess, going on 11 months of how important these relationships are and that we think about others around us 
and that when we think about policies and protections, that it affects all of us. That's a very powerful moment. Yeah. Very touching. We don't know what people are going through. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, you don't. And I, I tell you, some of the strongest people I know are our cancer survivors that we've met at the center um, to, to hear their stories, much like you just you just shared. That's very powerful. And I encourage the listeners, if you know someone that's trying to find a community that's there to support them, please have them call the Survivorship um, Center. Again, 806-331-2400. We have so many health and wellness programs um, to get you connected and find you a new community that can support you. That's right. That's right. You know, uh, Pam, I think this has been incredibly educational today. I know I said that a second ago, but I just keep pondering back to some of the things that Kathy shared. Um, And I know some of our listeners know someone that needs to know this, right? That's a lot of no's. Our listeners, they know somebody. Uh, so we encourage you to share this podcast with, with your friends, with someone that you know. Uh, subscribe our, to our podcast. Uh, I'll always like to joke and say, hit all the buttons. You know, give us a review. Let us know, uh, you know, what else you'd like to hear. It's, it's very important. Um, we're able to find great uh, guests and, and experts in these fields. Um, you know, Kathy is in the beautiful state of Colorado, uh, she's not from Amarillo. So, you know, we're, we're blessed to be able to pull in some great guests and Kathy, I, uh, I just can't thank you enough, uh, for joining us today and, and sharing your wisdom, uh, that you have and really bringing it down to a very simplistic way. We appreciate that. Thank you, Ryan and Pam. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Kathy, is there a way um, some of our listeners, if they want to look at some of your research that you have done, is there a website or your Instagram or Facebook, any kind of? Um... Um, they Any listeners welcome to contact me directly if they would like at kathy.bradley at um, cunshoots.edu. Um, and also my publications are on, are on PubMed and I've done a number of things there as well. And it's Kathy what they see. All right. That's right. That's right. And they're, they're great studies. Uh, it's it's very interesting if you're into studies and and my background is. And so it's kind of it's very interesting to read and, and enjoy those. Thank you again, Kathy. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us on this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you again next week. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.